Hello, I'm Jason Solomons. Welcome to 2022 and a very happy new year to you, you lovely listeners of Seen Any Good Films Lately, the podcast dedicated to bringing you the people and films starring in the awards season of 2022 and giving you the best recommendations of what films to watch, new and classic. Whenever I first I got my first Walkman, and I remember like being on trains and stuff, listening to soundtracks to, to movies, and I'd be like staring out the window and just I was felt like I was in a movie all the t- all the time. My whole life just felt like a movie when I had my headphones on, you know. On this edition of the show, I'm joined by a hot tip for BAFTA nominations for his amazing one-take film, Boiling Point, which stars Stephen Graham and has already won four British Independent Film Awards. It's director Phil Barantini. And I step into the ring with one of the UK's busiest and most wide-ranging filmmakers, Matt Whitecross, to talk about his beautiful yet brutal boxing doc series, The Kings, about the four personalities who dominated the sport in the 1980s. Marvellous Marvin Hagler, Thomas the Hitman Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, and Panama's Hands of Stone, Roberto Duran. We'll hear from Phil Barantini and Matt Whitecross on cooking and boxing and the films that they've loved after I tell you if I've seen any good films lately. The year's got off to a troubled start at the cinema again. Bloody Covid. So fed up of it, as we all are, I'm sure. Spider-Man, No Way Home, that's found success amid it all but it has laid waste to something like the poor Palm Door winner Titan at the UK box office. It's a tricky film at the best of times, Titan, and it needs word of mouth. It needs succès de scandale. It needs everyone talking about it. It needs rowdy midnight screenings to catch fire. And that's just not happening at the moment. But I'd still say go and see it. And please let me know if you do see it, how you feel about it. Just email sagful at jasonsolomons.com. We're always there for you. I'd love to know your opinions and how you feel, especially at a film that's as divisive and provocative and different as Titan. So here's two films anyway that might be less of a gamble. Licorice Pizza by Paul Thomas Anderson and A Hero by double Oscar winner Asghar Fahadi from Iran. We'll start with Licorice Pizza, which is the connoisseur's choice. It serves up a slice of California sunshine to get this year going. It's a summer coming-of-age movie, which is one of my favourite genres, set in 70s LA, where this director certainly has previous form in the shape of Boogie Nights and Inherent Vice, films which share this latest one's easy, breezy, freewheeling approach and all pepped up by a very eclectic soundtrack. Choices here from Sonny and Cher to Susie Quattro to Bowie, Gordon Lightfoot and Taj Mahal, many more too. Pizza, as I'm going to call it, is about a young woman, played by pop star Alana Hayim on her film debut, being pursued by a spotty teenage actor called Gary Valentine, who, as his name perhaps suggests, is relentlessly optimistic in his pursuit of a woman at least ten years his elder. If I asked for your phone number, would you give it to me? Why should I give you my phone number? So I can call you? I don't know, Gary. Why not? How are you going to remember it? It's only seven numbers. Seven five eight four six eight six. Seven five six four six eight six. 
758-4686. Alright, Don Rickles. Don't call me all the time, okay? We're not boyfriend and girlfriend. Remember that. The romance crush, as it is, is episodic, picaresque, and it takes in many scenes, some of which are more successful than others. But there's no doubt that Paul Thomas Anderson is a masterful director. His handling of atmosphere, his orchestration of sequences can bring a smile to a cinephile's face. You purr at the elegance of the execution at times. There's a lot of nostalgic fun to be had in Nickerish Pizza and the filmmaker captures the breeze of young love and the pain and confusion of growth. But it does meander and it does drift and it literally careers out of control and goes downhill in one memorable sequence in a truck. It's got cameos scattered all over it like pizza toppings on a wobbly, cheesy base. There's Sean Penn and Tom Waits, both rather irritating and unnecessary and superfluous, it feels to me. Then there's Bradley Cooper as hairdresser-turned-producer John Peters, and he's brilliant. The film's central relationship between Alana and Gary, it did make me feel a bit queasy, I have to say the age gap and the persistence of Gary becomes a bit creepy at times. But if I'm honest, it's something I felt I should feel. I didn't really feel that put out by the age gap. (laughs) Such as the wind in the hair insouciance of the filmmaking and the spirit of it all. Compared to Paul Thomas Anderson's best work, this is a minor doodle. It's a sketch. It's a fast food order. It's a strange mix, as the title Licorice Pizza might suggest. But I enjoyed watching it very much. In the cold light of the next morning, though, I think I'd throw this pizza away, then finish it off for breakfast. And that your clothes are out of line And that your hair isn't combed all the time You're not real pretty, but you're mine Now to a hero and twice an Oscar winner for A Separation and The Salesman, Iranian director Asghar Fahadi. He's got to be a favourite to add more awards to this glittering collection he's already amassed. This latest film, A Hero, has already bagged in the Grand Prix at Cannes. And actually gold is what the film's all about. The plot turning on that filmic staple of a bag of treasure. In this case, it's about 17 gold coins that a man, Rahim, uh, who's out on a few days release from his debtor's prison, sees as his route to salvation and a new life with his new girlfriend, Farkonde. Rahim claims that he found the money and that he's putting it up for reward and whoever has lost it should come and claim it. And he thinks that that will restore his reputation as an honest man and a hero and, and give him a bit of cash too. So very soon he's the talk of the town and he's on TV and he's in the newspapers. But then his simple plan starts to get very complicated, particularly with the guy who he owes money to in the first place, the rather bullying and brutish Braham. Look, your throat, as you watch a hero, tightens itself as Rahim wraps himself ever further in his own machinations, trying to live up to this billing of a local hero, and he's not up to it. It's written with such elegance and precision, and it unfolds at a thriller-like pace. The Hero is definitely one of the key movies in this award seasons. There are echoes of Fahadi's past work, particularly when 
a hero remains in the secular realm. You know, it gives us a real look at life in Shiraz, actually, the city it is. And uh, it depicts households where they're all having sort of food on the, on the table. They have food on the carpet, on the floor. And the busy offices and busy modern streets and cafes. And there's this bustling indoor bazaar where Braham's shop is. And that becomes the, the scene for some two really tense but, but scuffles and standoffs, sort of choreographed uh, fights, if you like. But they're really, really tense. There's a lot of question marks hanging in a hero. And I think that's the point. I'm giving it benefit of doubt quite easily here. Confusion, moral and narrative is surely part of it. And Asghar Fahadi and the enigmatic smile on the face of his protagonist, Rahim, are not going to give things away that easily. Right, that's two films recommended. A few more to come on Seen Any Good Films Lately, including The King's which isn't really a film, but it's a four-part documentary series and available in the UK on Discovery+. And it's the work of director Matt Whitecross, who made Road to Guantanamo, uh, that very fine Ian Drury biopic with um, Andy Serkis, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. He made Spike Island about the legendary concert, and uh, he made Oasis Supersonic, and he's done videos for Coldplay. And he's now working with producer James Gay Reese, uh, one of a few producers, but he, uh, James, who we've had on the show, he, he did Maradona and Senna with Asif Kapadia. And together they come up with this thrilling documentary about 80s boxing and the four middleweights who defined and dominated the ring left vacant by the retirement of Muhammad Ali. The film looks at marvellous Marvin Hagler from Massachusetts, Hitman Hearns from Detroit, Sugar Ray, the golden boy inheritor of Ali's glamour, and the Panamanian street kid Roberto Duran, Manos de Piedra, Hands of Stone, And it looks at them as products of their time and their place, and it sets up the connection between capitalism and pugilism in the individualistic, shiny, consumerist America of Ronald Reagan. So when I spoke to Matt Whitecross, I asked him how he felt about boxing and these giants of the sport who spent a decade basically knocking each other down. What really amazed me was that I went in quite strong early on and saying, all right, let's give boxing its day in court. It's such a controversial it's an amazing sport, but it's very controversial. You defend it to me. And what really surprised me is all these people who they've dedicated their lives to this sport, whether they're the boxers, or whether the people outside the ring, they could be the trainers. And every single one of them confessed to having that same ambivalence that I have, which I, which was really interesting to me. They said, look, I can't defend it. But on the other hand, it's transformed my life and it's transformed the lives of everyone around me, that sort of thing. And so at a certain point, we had so much of this material I just, I was talking to Paul, the editor, who was working on the first two episodes, and I was just like, well, maybe maybe we need to do something with this. Maybe we should just stick that this could be the opening or the ending of the first episode and just go, okay, what is boxing? What is, and we, is it, does it come from us because as a species we're violent or is it an, is it an expression of that violence? Is it, does it encourage, does it kind of... And so I started, I kind of had a thesis, which was, well, look, boxing is, is symbolic it's a, you know sport often sport gets used to, you know all different kinds of sports get used as metaphor but more than any other sport i would argue boxing lends itself to that metaphor and the first person we met on the first day i think was teddy atlas maybe the second person after jackie who's tommy hearns's uh, friend and he sat down and he said you know boxing is a metaphor for life and immediately i was like this is great because he's he's given me better versions of anything that, that i could have come up mm-hmm. with but he he believes it and he's lived it and i i think the idea of you put these two lone souls in a ring together and they have to fight it out there's not a team behind them when you're in the in the ring you're on your own 
And that definitely lends itself to comparisons. It could be political, it could be just to do with the struggles that we all face day to day in life. And seeing the old BBC reporter Harry Carpenter in this film, it reminded me of a report I'd seen of Hagler training to Michael Jackson's wannabe starting something way back in the 80s. And that's why I sort of fell in love with him. And I asked Matt about getting all of the music for the series together and digging into the sounds and the TV archives of the American 80s. Oh, it was such a joy. I mean, we're like, what an era, the 80s, for for music. I had, um, yeah, we just had a playlist, which we'd ping back and forth. And you're just trying to find the right thing at the right moment. Sometimes it's stuff that they were listening to, and I was going through interviews and seeing what they were into, the boxes. Sometimes it's just it just needs to represent that moment. Then you might, of course, the problem is you spend two years making something and fall in love with all the music. And then at the end, the poor music supervisor has to, Ian Cook, has to go through and try and clear all this stuff, which is a, which is a nightmare, particularly when it comes to 80s hip hop, because none of it's been cleared. And yes. Sampled everywhere. And then also, um, you know, those, those guys, I think a lot of these guys never got paid in the first place. They're finally like, okay, well, now I'm going to get paid. So some of the quotes that come in are just insane. But it was good. No, I loved all that. And I'd sit there every time I'd go out for a run. I'd, we'd just go through an 80s playlist and send things back and forth to each other. The main issue we had was just how, like not layering it over so much. Like, it was amazing just to, to be in that era, which I grew up in, and just to be able to kind of dip a toe into that musical world. But then the next thing was, that, well, obviously you're throwing all this music on top of it and you're sticking with it. Was just, like, how do you find a kind of balance in terms of the score which needs to be as big and bombastic as the fights and the boxes themselves and really give a sense of the grandeur of those those uh, big events, but and not just be too kind of tribalist and silly and kind of over-emotional or sentimental. So that balance, Rail Jones, who who I've worked with a lot, he it was it was amazing actually, just trying to find like that that kind of something that feels introspective enough and feels representative enough and feels of that time without feeling like a pastiche that was a that was a real and then also you, you know you you start falling in love with all the temp music you used in the meantime <laughs> and then the, the poor composer has to come in in the end and not do something new and actually he he kind of in a lot of cases ignored what we'd put in as temp and came up with something much better which is what you always hope for but there's still room for some fantastic fights i know you're slightly queasy about boxing but that <laughs> like the sugar ray hearns fight for example which i'd I remember seeing uh, I, I had forgotten to see and then you, you, you know some of the nostalgia of the the, the, the absolute brilliance of these fighters because normally boxing films are, are heavyweights slugging it out very rare to get four middleweights at this at this you know, who are absolutely you know could, can actually knock people out and have the the musculature and the strength and the agility I, it, it, you're right it's, it sort of doesn't really happen again i don't think that, that it's ever been matched again that having four people who could go at each other like that i mean as much as you know i think everyone on the planet knows who ali is everyone knows who tyson is the heavyweights suck up a lot of the oxygen but actually i mean with the exception of maybe ali who has this balletic grace when he's moving about most of them, are, and especially the, the most modern ones, they get into a size now where it's just like looking at a really bad pub fight to an untrained eye anyway, if I'm going to say. <laughs> Wait, I agree with you, Tyson Fury and Klitschko, it's like two, I don't know, it's like two mountains just kind of circling each other. Right, I don't get much enjoyment for that, whereas I do from these fights. I mean, these fights are absolutely incredible because it feels like it's just it's just the right balance of kind of weight behind those punches, but then this this amazing energy where they can move around the ring I mean, when you see Sugar Ray Leonard, he is, it's unbelievable. It is kind of, it's almost like watching Ali again. And certainly Hearns was someone who seemed to be, who had the physique of a heavyweight, 
but then was whip it thin. So that was was amongst those people. So he was a bit of an anomaly. But if you watch those two, I hadn't quite gathered. I mean, obviously James and Paul had said to me, but I haven't really gathered going into it how, how huge and iconic these guys were. I knew the story was going to be interesting, but actually you speak to people who know boxing like you, and they, they hold these guys up in as high esteem as, as Ali or Tyson. For uh, sure. it, it, it honestly took the, takes the breath away watching them again. You're like, oh my god, that's just the flurry, the speed of punching, the the ferocity of it, and and the way they kept going and keep withstanding. There was a narrative to the fights; they went on for so long as well. They were yeah. kind of real epic, epic, epic battles. And, Fifteen rounds. Yes, yeah, you know they didn't nuts. muck about. You know it was. You know they 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 stood up, but they kept down. Oh, just it, I think it just looks great, and I love the the way it looks. You know that 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 sort of American TV. Uh, there was nothing as nothing more glamorous than something coming from Caesar's Palace in that eighties, you know, sort of uh, slightly. I don't know what ratio it is. That TV uh, ratio just looks just looks like uh, look, like growing up. And I, as as a Brit, one was very envious of it. We got ABA and Harry Carpenter and sort of maybe <laughs> maybe the occasional Frank Bruno or an Alan Minter. But the glamour of Vegas that came over on those fights was always just uh, just so I was so envious of it. And of course, since I had him on the show, I also asked Matt Whitecross about the film that changed his life. Yeah, there's so many films which I mean, I think I would say most of my favourite films have changed my life <laughs> and certainly my outlook in some way. Well, I suppose a few that I connect with. So, uh, you know, Michael Winterbottom, the director, is, is, a, is a very good friend of mine, but it was a mentor of sorts, even though I don't think he would necessarily, he would never put it into those words, but he really took me under his wing. I was working as a, as a kind of, as an everything, as a general dog's body and eventually kind of projectionist at, um, at the Phoenix Cinema in Oxford, where I grew up, so, so near where I grew up. Yeah. And um, and so they they had his first film, uh, Butterfly Kiss was supposed to be shown there. And I would have to go in every night and obviously watch it. And there was a buzzer at the back that you'd have to press. This was pre-projectionist days where I'd have to press it if it was going wrong, which it continued did. And so <laughs> if, if, the project, if the film had fallen off the projector, then I would have to kind of buzz it and just wake up the projectionist. And I so I must have watched that film about 30 times or something. And then he was supposed to be coming in doing Q&A. Uh, but in, as I've realized, it's kind of, uh, it's not unusual for Michael. He, he obviously didn't fancy it, didn't turn up. But I remember thinking, being really blown away by the film and wanting to meet him. And, and then I watched more and more of his films and tried to interview him when I started doing a bit of film journalism at, at uni. And, uh, and and again, he didn't turn up for any of the Q&As that he was supposed to be doing. And um, so Wonderland was the next film of his that really knocked me back. Uh, it was on the, the London Film Festival. But it wasn't, we actually, I got a chance to travel with him to the border of Afghanistan and then all the way back with a very small team of people, including Fiona, my producer now, um, on a film he made called In This World, which was amazing. And which that won, was which won still- the, Which won the Golden Bear at Berlin. It did, yeah. And it was still one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life, just going over there with a group of about six of us, including Anita Overland and these two young actors. So that probably would be the film that changed everything in terms of me feeling, well, this is actually something, you know, this is just something that I never would have imagined I could have done, and, and, and I'm actually here. Yeah, I can, can wonderful pitch myself. memory. Wonderland, a great film. But then I suppose the one that really did change my life was, was the one after that, which was Road to Guantanamo, because I, Michael was supposed to be making a football film, and you know my feelings on sport, <laughs> so I, and I was supposed to be editing it, or one of the editors on it, and so I, we got out, went out and got drunk one night, at which point he kind of revealed that he thought the whole thing was going to go under. And I said that night, well, we were both quite drunk, and I was like, well, you shouldn't be making this film anyway, you should be making a film about these guys who've just been released from Guantanamo Bay, because that's this is a meaty film, this is, this is about something, this is important, and not this, none of this sport nonsense. And he said, all right, well, if you think it's that important, 
you should go and make it. And I was like, I'd love to. If you, like, if you give me a million quid, I'll go off and make it tomorrow. And he said, well, why don't we direct it together? Which again, is like, you know, the, the, effectively, I mean, I was editing by that point for him, but you know, someone who had started out as a runner, as an assistant for him, effectively, you know, one of my favorite, still to this day, British filmmaker, Absolutely. saying, oh, do you want to, do you want to pair up? Uh, was just unheard of. So I assumed the next morning he would have kind of a hangover and remorse over the, the no, but he never did and he, and he stuck to it. So that really was the film that, that completely changed everything for me. With Riz Ahmed and his, I think it was Riz's first film, was it not? It was, yeah. it was, yeah. And I remember Riz. he came in for the, the audition, he's fantastic. And and he was brilliant. And it was undeniable that he's, he's brilliant, but it was also, uh, I was just like, but he doesn't look anything like him. And I, for some reason in my head, I was like, but he doesn't look like the, the real guy. And Michael's like, you know, shut up. Luckily, he just said, "Me, don't know what you're talking about." So couldn't let him go either, without wanting to know from such a leading figure in music filmmaking, which screen musical moments have stayed with him. I mean, the one I, I come back to a lot, and actually, we referenced it in a music video last year. Well, no, two years ago. I'm forgetting that we've lost two years, but a couple of years ago, we did a, a Coldplay video uh, with a rotating set, and my dad was uh, Fred Astaire obsessive and musicals obsessive and gangster movie obsessive and all those things but he, he really loved Fred Astaire and I remember the, the moment everyone must you know everyone knows that the moment in Royal Wedding where the the well impossibly he starts dancing on the ceiling mm. and for years I had no idea how they did that effect and then when I worked I mean, obviously when you work it out you have it explained so you realize that it's a rotating set you couldn't possibly be he hasn't got sticky feet but it <laughs> was um so we ended up doing the same thing for a Coldplay video a couple of years ago and it was amazing. Like, that's probably the most fun I've ever had on a set because it doesn't make any sense. And even if you're looking at the monitor and then you quickly look at the set, you basically have to run to the loo and be sick because it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, God knows how much fun they had on Inception because it was, yeah, that was that was great. But yeah, Royal Wedding, but anything with Fred Astaire in it. And actually speaking of Paul Thomas Anderson, I mean, so many moments in Boogie Nights, but I love that moment of chaos when they go and they try and do the drug deal that goes wrong mm. or the, you know, the, the, the trying to rip off the the drug dealer Alpha Alpha Melina, Melina, yeah. yeah and, they, and they're playing that uh you know jesse's girl and the, the little tie boy or whoever he is is just chucking the firecrackers <laughs> and then it slowly tracks it just stays on marky marks Mark Wahlberg's face for what feels like about four hours of just cocaine induced panic and nightmare and i was just that was one of my favorite moments in films ever and you can hear more of me and Matt in conversation, plus news of his new documentary about the music of James Bond. And he's currently working on that. You can catch up with that on my weekly Totally Wired radio show, The Jason Solomon Show, on the uh, Totally Wired radio website or finding it on Mixcloud. And Matt Whitecross's The Kings is on Discovery Plus right now. It's a bit of a knockout, really. Now... There's a British film simmering away this awards season. It's called Boiling Point, and it's all captured in one breathtaking shot, detailing a very busy night in a London restaurant as everything comes to a climax for head chef, played by Stephen Graham, and the camera snakes around this restaurant from the kitchens to the bar to the staff to the tables and then back again, uh, all in one shot. It's an extraordinary achievement. There are health inspectors coming in. There are food orders. There are staff and grumpy customers and personal problems. And there's a surprise visit from an infamous, very influential food critic. There's an old mate who wants some money back. There's a stag party. It's all going on. And Boiling Point is a bit of a wonder to watch. It's a fucking joke, isn't it? How do you wash your hands, love? I know, dear. Sorry, what? In the sink. 
in this sink. Which All sink? Right. Andy. Which sink? Andy. No, hang on, Carly. No, 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 no. Carly, wait a minute. Look, she's, this is Carly. Knew. Carly, this is fucking basic GCSE yeah. fucking cooking and it's school. And her first week, so it's my responsibility. It's not a first week in any fucking kitchen, though, is it? You've worked in kitchens before, haven't you? Yes. Yeah? Yes. That's why you're here. You've worked in kitchens before, yeah? Yes. Yes, what? Yes, chef. Yes, chef. So what's that sink for, kid? Food. For what? Food. What do you not do in that sink? Wash your hands. Wash your what? Hands. Wash your hands, yeah. Fucking gobshite here. You using the wrong fucking sink. And you, soft ass, what are you playing at? Uh, what do you mean, sir? What do you mean? What do I mean? What the fuck are you doing? I, I'm not, I'm not supposed to be on this section, chef. Tony, how long have you worked here, lad? No, I've been here, no but it's Hobbs. It's Tony. Hobbs. Tony, how long have you worked here, son? Yeah. Yeah, he's saying you've got no fucking gloves on. Cross-contamination oh, with the oysters. Got yeah, chef, put your fucking gloves on. Sorry. Put your gloves on, son. Now, sorry. listen, Tony, you book your fucking ideas up, lad, because there's a million kids out there who would die for this fucking opportunity yes, that sir. you've been given. Yes, sir. Yeah? Show yes, some fucking respect. Respect your fucking self. Boiling Point uh, has already won four British Independent Film Awards, one for its cinematography and for the actress Finette Robinson. So before the film goes any further and comes out and released in cinemas and on digital, I caught up with its director, Phil Barantini, to find out more about how he did it, why he did it and where he did it. It's in Dawson, yeah, it's on uh, Gillette Square. It's a fantastic restaurant. Because I knew the layout, I instantly was like... (sighs) we've got to use this place, you know, if, if we, you know, because it, it, I just knew it like the back of my hand, you know, yeah. and, and I started mapping it out in my head, like the sort of moves that we could do. And and it was very exciting, you know. And so, yeah, so so the plan was to do it all in one take. And then when we realized we could do it and the equipment that we found, the camera, the, this one camera that we use, which is the Sony Venice camera, um, it's one of the only uh, pieces of kit that you can sort of live swap SD cards. What, and once how, we found that, how, out, how long does an SD card last? Well, because we were shooting at six K, you're probably looking at like, I don't know, twenty minutes, half an hour. Oh, okay. Um, and then so we were able to live swap them. Um, so there's two two slots mm. basically, and they they sort of swap around. So, I mean, I'm not a big tech. I don't know. How, well, it's the, not the your, that's not tech. your job. Maybe it's got, not my got, job. You've got no. plenty of plenty of conceptual <laughs> stuff to be getting on with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was a huge challenge, you know. I mean, but it was. Why did you set yourself a such a challenge then, Phil? Because it's a great well, I idea think... and I, I love it. I love its execution. It's breathless and you, you wait and you think, oh, my God, how do they do it? But ultimately, when you're watching it and as a critic or as an audience, whatever, mm. it, 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 it's not the technical bravura on on, on show is, it's you know, it, it adds to the atmosphere and the tension and the breathlessness of, the, of, of, of a night in a kitchen, which you obviously know so well. But why give yourself that to to do and what's the sort of ultimate aim other than me kind of going well well done there you did it without you know without well, dropping yeah i mean that that was sort of the last thing i wanted really is to for the audience to be like wow look how clever they are you yeah know? and i think i think for me you know um without sounding all i don't know <laughs> life is one take and <laughs> and this is this is a slice of life right and and certainly when you're working in a restaurant it's one take and you don't get chance to to sort of, you know, if, if you're having an issue with the customer or whatever, you don't get a chance to go and spend 10 minutes with your colleague and talk about it. It's literally, you know, everybody's on this track on a train going in the same direction. And, you know, you don't stop until till the restaurant's closed and all the customers have gone. And then you can go, OK, let's talk about the night. And, you know, that's that's how it works. And I, I wanted to immerse the audience in that and also create create that tension and that, yeah. and that extra layer of tension and, and the feeling that that sort of 
you know, they didn't want them to take their eyes off it for, for one second. There's been people saying like, you know, I wish I'd have spent more time with that person or I wish I'd have, that would have been resolved. But actually, in reality, you know, when you're in that 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 world and, and in that busy um, moment, it's not resolved until the end. And and certainly like, you know, the little microcosms like the, the, the passive racism and stuff like that. A couple of people who've sort of said, oh, I wish I'd have seen her get her comeuppance a bit more or, you know, you know, have that resolved. But you're never going to resolve that racism because she's going to go home and she's going to live with that and deal with that. You know what I mean? So yeah, but you're talking that, in the back there, the, 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 the washer uppers and the that. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. And, and there's, the lot, there's to... lots of lots of as as we know, in a, in a kitchen, there are lots of little sub relationships going on in the kitchen yeah. at front of house, back of house, the chef itself. Um, yeah. And they, I thought they all came to the fore really, really beautifully. I wondered, you know, when, when I was watching it, you know, is there a take where they, you, you couldn't drop a, a glass and, and carry on? Although I guess you do in, in a normal restaurant. I guess it, the instructions might have been, well, look, if that's what happens in a normal restaurant, we, we service carries on. If someone drops a plate, we just pick it yeah. up and, and, and play it up again. So, I said uh, that, you, yeah. yeah I absolutely you. said that. I, was, I, I sort of said, if you mess up, and you know it doesn't it's not sort of detrimental to the to the story and you know what's happening or you know yeah if you if you fall over and smash your head open and it's bleeding maybe carry on because it's good (laughs) drama (laughs) (laughs) but i just sort of said the audience will never know what's coming next so see what happens and go with it you know that's true and listen you must have been excited on the night of the biff as i I saw i was near your Mm. table and i saw you celebrating hard Um, (laughs) yeah uh, yeah. i don't blame you was it was it four awards that you won i think yeah we yeah we did yeah in the end so a technical um, award i hope we 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 won um, best sound best cinematography yeah um best casting yeah, and then and then Vinette won the best supporting actress, which yeah. is a fantastic. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, tell us about the part that uh, Vinette plays in that one. Did did you write it? How did you work with her? On yeah, yeah. Well, well, the whole the whole script was written quite solidly. Like the the, the stage direct direction was all in there, so the whole the whole movie was as you see it is is was all written. But I wanted to be sort of looser with the dialogue. I wanted the the actors to so we workshopped it um, for for a couple of weeks with the actors, and I still wanted it to be quite loose on the day, but it was very set. But in terms of uh, Vinette's character, she's based on a, on a bunch of people that I've worked with, you know, and also a lot of the characters are sort of, especially the kitchen staff, are loosely based on myself because I, I became a head chef after 10 years and I experienced everything that all the chefs have gone through in, in the kitchen and so especially the sous chef. That's the most demanding job, I think, in the kitchen because <clears throat> you're sort of in control and in charge of everything that's going on on the pass. And I wanted that character to, to be a, a woman and because, you know, and, I, and I'd done a lot of research and I'd, I'd worked with some female chefs as well. And it is harder for them in that industry, you know, to get to get to the top because especially in the old days, you know, the old school sort of chefs, they don't really respect mm. the, the, the women. There's a lot the of machismo involved in it. Yeah. You know, they, they think they're weaker and all that kind of stuff. And so I really wanted that character to be a female and, and uh, a certainly a female of color as well, because again it's it's just as that extra layer of of you know they, what they go through you know so Vinette came through Stephen I basically said to Stephen I would like you to be involved in the casting or certainly the you know give me ideas for for any all the kitchen staff because you're the head chef you would have employed every single member of staff so you need to have a relationship with these people especially you know we don't have a lot of time for rehearsals and to get to know people so 
I feel like you need to have a relationship with with it with all of them. And so Stephen gave me some suggestions for other characters. I thought she's she's amazing. Yeah, it was so actress. honestly to see her on screen. I I yeah. kind of knew her but didn't know her mm. work. And she's phenomenal. She brings an immediate presence to yeah. this. That's calm. That's strong. That's yeah, funny. That's wise. That's whippy. Yeah, I mean she's she's, she, she's powerful, honestly, and yeah, such a such a, a wonderful human being as well. Like, yeah, she's, she knows. Like, I just really hope she gets the recognition she deserves. Well, you know? started with the well, biffa. she is already. Yeah, you know, started with the biffa. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you feel about yeah. this award season? Once you go to the biffa, I mean, it's a small British independent movie, but you got Stephen, you yeah. got Renette and Ray. Yeah, um, you know, things are you know, I think BAFTA voting now going on. You know, yeah, what, yeah. What are your yeah. hopes I mean, for a film like this? Come kind of amazing. I, I, Look, I mean, you know, when we made it, it wasn't there wasn't any like thought of thoughts of, of any of that like going forward. You know, you make something. Well, I certainly do anyway. I make something because I, I love it and I'm, I'm passionate about it. And you know, you hope people feel the same way, and and you hope that audiences are going to respond to it. Yeah, I mean, it's completely exceeded all my expectations. You got to be a head chef. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty head. Yeah, 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 yeah. What, well, makes, look, you, what I makes think... you go right? Well, I, now I want to be a filmmaker. <laughs> Oh well, so I, I'd wanted to be a direct. I wanted to direct for for probably I don't know ten, fifteen years or something like that. Um, while I was acting, I'd always been really interested in it, but never had the confidence because I always thought directors were super educated and you know they've been to film school and they know everything about there is to know about film and actors and mm. you know and every department you know they know everything and that's not the case. And it it took something quite re- really horrific in my life basically my mum passed away quite suddenly five years ago oh i'm sorry to hear that and when something like that happens to you it sort of changes everything your whole mindset and 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 sort of outlook on life and stuff and so it was just one of them i mean it was just like well, what have i got to lose here like what what's the worst that can happen like you know let me give it a go great so i just went into it with that mindset and i made a short and did well in the festivals and then and then i I'd always had the idea to set something in a in a in a restaurant kitchen or whatever you know. I do love restaurant. I have to say I love restaurant movies. You know, there are yeah, I, food, me too. It's a, they're foodie movies, and then there are restaurant movies. You know, yeah, this is a, yeah. Go, get, what, name me a couple of your favorite restaurant movies. Big Night. Yes, it's probably my favorite. I love Chef. Yeah, what the the food truck one with the yeah, Favreau, yeah, John I love Favreau. that movie. Yeah, and then. Ratatouille? Yes. <laughs> Three great ones. You've got Chef in the Truck, Ratatouille's cartoon, obviously, and then yeah, Sandy, yeah, yeah. Sandy Tucci making an omelette in Big Night, you know. It's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Big Night is it was a big inspiration actually for the for what? the film. What the fuck? I know it's got the range. Forget it. Forget, forget. What the fuck is he talking about? I'm confused. No, I make fun. Oh. Oh. I make a fan of your brand. <laughs> no, it's a joke. I make like a joke. I don't hear the joke. Well, it's not I'm I make a toast. Uh, no, for me, it's too early. Nay, it's never too late. <laughs> so this is to tonight, the big night, when I bring you together my old friend Louis Prima with my two new friends. You guys are simply the best. Salute. Hey, salute. What's and the first film you saw at the cinema, Phil? Ever? Ever. Back to the Future Two. <laughs> Where was that? Uh, oh, actually, no, that's a lie. The Little Mermaid. Yes. <laughs> Clearly an yeah. influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big influence. Yeah, well, you yeah, like yeah. the old uh, shellfish giving it all There's <laughs> <laughs> where my love of seafood comes from. Yeah, there we you go. see. Yeah, yeah, it all connects. It all comes full circle. Where's your favourite cinema? Ooh, good question. 
I actually love the Rio cinema. I'm actually going there tomorrow. And then wow. we'll, we'll all have well, a it's, it's only a hop, skip and a jump from the actual restaurant itself. Yeah, well, we'll actually go into the restaurants afterwards for the canapes and stuff like that. Uh, so, and and J- Andy Jones, the real Andy Jones, is putting on um, some cocktails and he's actually doing one cocktail in a squeezy water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> that was a brilliant idea. Fantastic. Yeah. So the Rio, that's a great. I mean, that 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 works for me as a filmmaker. If if I could send you to any set in the past to, for any film being made, where would you like to drop in? You could go for a day. Where Goonies? Goonies. <laughs> yes. Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I just look. I mean, that. So I grew up in the eighties, and it's that's like for me, just everything about that movie just is just the, the nostalgia, and just I just felt like. Even now, when you watch it now, it's just like, it just holds up, doesn't it? It's just such an amazing, I, I, yeah. I think that for me is is my sort of childhood. It's an adventure, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I love yeah. the way that, because when, when chefs talk about food, they talk about their creations. If you watch Master Chef or whatever, mm. they, they talk about how it encapsulates childhood. And I think movies do the same sort of thing. And I, I can see that with, with, with the way that you've approached this, you know, there's a sort of yeah. similar emotional kind of connection to it, you know, either through yeah. the mother as a story and the backstory of the provenance. Yeah. I think films have as provenance too. That's how I like to yeah, approach yeah. them. Have you ever yeah. fallen in love at the cinema? Oh, Little Mermaid. No. <laughs> yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> Oh God! But I'm pre- yeah, probably yeah. Probably. I can't believe your 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 love of you know attractive women and and seafood comes together. So you, you know, fancy yeah, the Little Mermaid and Daryl Hannah in Splash. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There we go. Fishy women. <laughs> Fishy women. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite yeah. location that you've ever seen on screen? I think uh, like Revenant. You know, just just the way that it was, you know, the way that that it was filmed in terms of like all natural light. Yeah. It just, I just think that bleakness was just came across a bit. Like I felt it. You know what yeah. I mean? I love the fact that um, you you've done one of the most enclosed films in in a restaurant. I love that location, by the way. And then you, you've gone for a massive open vista of of, yeah. of the Revenant as well. But it also still felt quite like claustrophobic. That movie, I think. Well, it would do if you're hiding out in a dead bear it was yeah. a dead horse that he spent the night yeah. in <laughs> yeah I mean uh, I could go, be locations I mean I could go on forever like again back to the future you know all that nostalgia type thing is yeah. like I actually went to um, the secret cinema thing back to the future one when they did that yeah you went to that oh amazing in Just which like, case I'm going to finish yeah. you with another good question what is go your favourite screen musical moment and it doesn't have to be from a musical film but it can be the use of music to illustrate a moment in cinema Jurassic okay. Park oh which bit of that so the, the theme tune oh, for yeah, Jurassic yeah. Park whenever that Just plays the first one mm. you know mm. that is like yeah it gives me goosebumps that 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 music yeah I don't know why well I mean it's Spielberg like, and John Williams well, you know when yeah. they do Jaws when they do E.T. you know the music kind yeah. of goes with the image you know probably yeah. as much as anyone else so a great choice of Jurassic Park look I love from a, even a young age I Whenever I first I got my first Walkman, I remember like getting listening to to soundtracks of movies or or you know find, finding them or whatever I could on I don't I can't remember how I used to find them like mini discs and things like that. <laughs> and I remember like being on trains and stuff, listening to soundtracks to, to movies, and I'd be like staring out the window and just I was felt like I was in a movie all the t- all the time. My whole life just felt like a movie when I had my headphones on, you know. Um, but it was always those big powerful pieces like you know Jurassic Park and you know.
Have you got any film posters in your in your house? I have, and no, I haven't put them up yet. I've got "It's a Wonderful Life" is mm-hmm. the, is one. We moved house last December, and I still haven't put. We just got this room done recently, so there's nothing in here. That's the, that, the so main that's one going up. That's going up in here, yeah. Brilliant. At some point, yeah. <laughs> and you could probably put a boiling point poster up there. For I mean, one, with a nice quote on it. I think so. Yeah, I think I think it, I actually asked the sales agent the other day if I could get some posters from some of the the, the distributors across the, the across the world, and like you know, like the Spanish one. And the, is it called and, different? It's boiling point. It's than... called. Um, I think it translates to boiled or boil or something like that in Spanish, and then the, the French one is called the chef, but not in French. Not Le Chef, it's just The Chef oh, in, okay. in, in English, <laughs> which was, yeah. I love that. I love that. I do as well. I do. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not sure what, what the other ones are. I'm, I'm, I'll be interested to to see what the, see sort of, around um, the world. Japanese one and stuff like that is. Listen, yeah. we start we start at the beginning. We start at the Rio in Dalston and we'll move out from the world, the yeah, world yeah, domination yeah, yeah. after that. Uh, yeah. Philip Barantini, brilliant to talk to you. Really lovely you to, to see you. And thanks, enjoy Jason. the success. I've enjoyed Boiling Point very much when I first saw it. I've seen it again since and uh, you know, oh, I, I, I marvel at it. But great performances as well. Stephen, Finette, Ray, they're all, they're all, they're all terrific in it. And uh, I wish you the Thank best you. of luck with it going forward for awards season, Phil. Thank you so much. And Boiling Point will be in cinemas and on digital platforms in the UK and Ireland from the 7th of January. Well, that's about it for this edition. So much in there from Ratatouille to Fred Astaire. That's how we roll on Sagful. I'm also watching Toast of Tinseltown. Just a quick mention from Matt Berry's hilarious acting character, Stephen Toast, who's at last chasing the big-time recognition he craves and heading to Hollywood to be recognised as the great thespian of his generation. I've always loved Toast. Uh, I do love this show. And the latest series has landed now on iPlayer. I've just seen the first episode. I really enjoyed it. So get with it. Do you hear me? I can hear you, Clem Fandango. you got to be there. The beleaguered Golden Globes are taking place in Hollywood this weekend, January the 9th. Usually a cause for much celebration, but they're much diminished from the usual back-slapping awards season kick-off. There's no stars, no audience, no TV show. The Globes are in disrepute because the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has been dragged through the mud. It's not diverse enough. There's been corruption at its heart. So it's been sort of cancelled, except they're still holding the awards and giving out the awards. So the main contenders are nevertheless going to fall into place for the Oscar race after this. I'd look out for strong performances at the Globes from Belfast, Power of the Dog, West Side Story, and probably The Lost Daughter, I'd say, are my tips. I'll be back next week to see how we did with those tips. And I'll also have the brilliant British filmmaker Andrea Arnold on the show talking about her awards-tipped documentary, Cow, about a cow. Thanks to my guests, Matt Whitecross, to Phil Barantini, to my editor, Kate Dawkins, putting it all together as ever, and to you for listening. We'll see you next time and we'll play out with some classic 80s hip-hop breaks I heard in Boxing Doc the Kings. Ta-da. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got what it takes. Because I'm Curtis Blow and I want you to know that these are the breaks. <laughs>